welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. Today we are recording a book review episode. We are here with episode number 78, 78 of our Penguin Little Black Classics collection. That is a collection of world literature that Penguin has assembled in small volumes. Joining me for this book review today is co-host Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hi. Happy Halloween hangover to us all. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Amanda's family is really riding this one out. Young kid in the house. Chocolate aplenty. Man, it's tough. So much candy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, difficult to wade through it all. But, they, you know, that's kind of the charm of the season. Weather cools down, leaves start to fall, and there's too many Snickers bars. So you got to yeah. deal with it all. Yep, we all gain like 20 pounds. And <laughs> it'd be. I think the human race would be better if we had a bear-like hibernation. I mean, I, I suppose in the cold climates, we kind of do have that. But mm-hmm. if our biology could account for that, if it was more, if our biology was more ready to, to do that, <laughs> I think that would be uh, maybe something we could evolve into. We'll look into it. We'll see what we can get done in the next 20, 30,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> no more fingernails just because they're a hassle and yep. just shedding weight at rapid pace in the summer. That mm-hmm. either would be cool. We are not here to discuss biology or evolution. Dar- the Darwin episode was like 10 back, so if you're interested in Charles Darwin's theories of evolution and his observations on animals, go ahead and just find that review instead. Today we are reviewing a collection of history by Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, and they have a selection from one of his histories called The Madness of, we agreed, Cambyses? Yeah. The Madness of Cambyses, who is a Persian... Uh, I think more precisely, is it, oh, fuck, Achidonian? Acha? <laughs> anyway, a Persian uh, emperor, a Persian king. And so there's a history of his deeds and sort of exploits and stuff. I do. I, there's going to be so many words I can't pronounce in this one. I think it's Achimenid. Menide? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't even try to pronounce it in my head. I was just like, okay. act dude. Oh. <laughs> he was the second king of kings of the Achaemenid Empire from 530 to 522 BC. We'll begin the review today with a first a glut of mispronunciations. Check. Got that one out of the way. Yep. Done. Well, we're nice. well on our way in this review. We'll also begin, though, with answering some basic questions about the collection that we read. And those questions are who, what, and why. I don't mind. I'll get us started. Yeah. Who wrote this? It was Herodotus, uh, probably the most famous historian of all time, not because his work is held up, but because he is considered perhaps the first in the Western canon anyway. He's called the father of history by people like Cicero and I think Thucydides too. Thucydides, who I encountered in college, uh, he wrote a very famous account of the Peloponnesian Wars, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so like that, and he, so he was kind of a disciple, I guess, of in some, or a stylistic disciple of Herodotus. And so Herodotus was just kind of the original. He tried to put things chronologically he attempted very rigorously to find the motivations behind different historical actions. He seems, in this collection, especially obsessed with the personal motivations of leaders, which, given the timing of his life, makes a ton of sense. You're it's a pretty top-heavy civilization at that point when you have empires, kings, and such mm-hmm. making big decisions. But, yeah, so that's who wrote this. Perhaps one of the first historians ever uh, writing history in a chronological account-like manner that we would expect it to be. Uh, what did we read, Amanda, and why did it matter? So we read uh, an excerpt from the history, specifically from um, book three. So it's broken up into different books. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, even know that. Yeah. Uh, so I forgot how many books there are in this. Um, well, there's but... a lot of history, so many probably. Many books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
there's quite a few. Um, so this yeah. one is um, book three, and it's um, a, a piece of what he gathered, some information that he gathered about a particular, um, like you said, like the Persians there. And um, mm-hmm. the reason for reading this is that, um, as you mentioned, he is considered the father of um, of um, history. Uh, specifically, uh, he was trying to create a method, a methodology for um, providing information that was unbiased, even though we see some of his biases. <laughs> certainly. Yeah, it's certainly true. And it really is that kind of codification or... Um, systematizing of history that I think academics credit him for. As usual, we will give a shout out to our research department here, which is Wikipedia. So that's what, according to Wikipedia, and that would have been, I think, a good test for some of these authors has been just what is my very uninformed, casual knowledge of this person's name who I've heard. Mm -hmm. That's what I would have said, too. He was just one of the first people to start putting down a system of history and trying to keep, trying to kind of both sidesism it and just sort of gathering together sources from a variety of places to assemble a narrative of what had happened in history. Right. And so, which then again bled down to, or was inherited by like Thucydides and some other people. Yep. So, yeah, I think this is the most kind of raw, unfiltered history that this entire collection has presented. It, we've done a good amount of nonfiction. We even had some debatable nonfiction in there, like Marco Polo yeah. and some other folks. But this is the most kind of in a way straightforward history we've had the biggest comparison point before this or to this rather would be we did some roman stuff uh, about caligula from suetonius who was a roman historian i like that way more not to spoil the ending of this review or anything but just because it was more opinionated and felt like way more shit talking this is has those moments but they're quite slight Mm -hmm. so this is more of a straightforward history let's not hold off any longer then amanda let's jump into the review proper uh why don't you begin us with your simile this week what was reading this collection like to you i said uh reading this was like listening to a gossip session with like those like really old biddies this might also be related to the fact that i've been like uh reading the miss marple uh, series by Agatha Christie, like where she's got the, I don't know if you've read Agatha Christie's Miss Marple stories, but I have not, I have actually never read Agatha Christie. I just know her stuff from all the adaptations. Yeah. So, so I've never, I've know her stories, but I don't, I've never read a book that she wrote. It, it makes me think of, I, I was drawing a comparison specifically to like Miss Marple and the way that she interacts with stuff because she gathers information, but then like when she explains the information that she's gathered, because she's kind of like an amateur sleuth, the, the when she explains the information, it sounds more like she's just gossiping to the other old ladies in town. And it's, and it's along the lines of like, Oh, well, did you hear that this and this? Well, in my opinion, I believe this and this. So I, I mm-hmm. compared it to that in that, yeah, he, he does have like all the information, but then he does give his opinion about like the, the validity of the information that he's given. And he does. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the information is interesting, just like sometimes with gossip. Yeah. It could be interesting, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like important for your, what's going on in your life. It's just like, so you're so detached from it because it doesn't have anything really to do with you personally. 
Yeah, you can feel him sifting interpretations, yeah. sort of, or filtering interpretations throughout the, the narrative that he's trying to present, which does feel rather gossipy. There's nothing like a secondhand gossip where the person gossiping with you is trying to disavow the gossip, but then also putting their own filter on top of gossip they heard. <laughs> yeah. Can, be, can become quite a rabbit hole to fall down trying to interpret whose motivations are what and kind of who's, I don't know, injecting what into the the gossip strain or the, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I'm going to go with a simpler simile, way more literal, almost <laughs> not even a simile. But I found reading this to be like the podcast Hardcore History, which I think is by like Dan Carlin or I forget the name. I think it's that though. If you find, look up Hardcore History, you'd find it. But I try, it's a podcast I admire from afar and I've tried to do a couple episodes on. But boy, it desperately needs editing because it's just this professor from somewhere. It's like a, he's a famous historian, but he just picks a topic of the day or week or I forgot how often the pod comes out. And he just just rips for like four hours. Like these episodes are so long and he wow. just kind of and and it's funny because you the way it's presented, it really does seem stream of consciousness at times. Mm-hmm. But you, there's probably a good amount of editing where he obviously has to pause. He does things like he reads primary sources all the time. And so I have to imagine in the background there's editing around that. Like, I don't think he has in front of him a 100 books and he just like is ripping them off the shelves and like pulling the perfect quote or whatever. But the way it's cut together it is just exhausting to read. It just yeah. never ends. Like you, you don't get a moment to summarize your thoughts. You don't get a moment to just breathe. And he never summarizes. It feels like he's just right on to the next primary source or interesting anecdote or description. Um, and he's so passionate. His kind of not voice literally, but his his tone narrator, uh, speaker, writer voice is, I think, really fun, but um, quite knowledgeable. And I think he balances that well. But I, I just. I just want the four-hour episodes to be edited into one hour with some breaks, some music, some guests, and it's, you know, call me a hypocrite. Like, we don't have a show where I do that stuff here. <laughs> Granted, we do do segments, though, for a reason. Like, I don't I don't necessarily believe in the stream-of-consciousness pod is kind of the be-all, end-all. But this just reminded me of that, because you could feel the passion. So, yeah, let me wrap around and explain this, Emily. You could feel the passion in it and kind of the exhaustive nature of him trying to track everything down and he is pretty upfront about those things when he thinks like oh the source doesn't seem trustworthy or uh you know i heard it from the greeks and who knows sometimes they lie to me that kind of stuff but um overall i just think it kind of dulled the effect it's just not how we would expect a historian to write this now Mm -hmm. but that's okay because this is 2500 years old <laughs> so it just it's it's written and presented in a style that i found hard to latch on to but the passion was pretty clear and the voice i thought was the right amount of authoritative but also invested and so it kind of had that i think a decent balance i'm not sure if you reacted to the voice well uh i i did enjoy that he had uh multiple per- perspectives in the text and i thought that when he made comments, I, I did find it like interesting. Um, but, and it's not what I expect. I, I thought it would be more like just a straight up te- like textbook almost so, <laughs> is what I was expecting. At times though, and this is where my childlike mind will reveal itself to the listeners. At times, wouldn't you have preferred a textbook? I love a good picture, man. Like I just, they're just more engaging to look at. I mean, granted, the writing can be very stiff and kind of dull, and that's yeah. 
point point taken but it's also concise which there's a value in concision too you know do do i need to know every human relationship that this leader had like there's a there's a place for that of course you know let the historians and academics battle that out and kind of dig but for me it's just kind of a i want the general trend i want some fun anecdotes that illuminate something and yeah i'm not ashamed to be like give me a picture like Show me a battle diagram. Just I don't like that stuff is uh, very evocative to me. And this yeah. again, this was fine, but it just I don't know. I feel like history can be more dynamic. And again, I, shouts for being twenty five hundred years old. It was it was interesting enough. I don't know. I didn't hate reading it. I thought it was just kind of um, stiff. It also suffered from namism. It's got that namism yeah. problem. We'll talk about later. Um, let's move to some connections, though, Amanda, to 2020. We, at the beginning of the reviews, always try and find some relevance to current day life, especially in the Penguin Classics, which are often quite old. Uh, I don't think they get older than this. This is, I think, other than the Odyssey, which I think is, like, undateable. I, don't, I think that one is so old that it's not even really properly dated, mm-hmm. uh, the Homer stuff. But this is 2,500 years old, straight up. So I don't think it gets much older. Uh, my connection is just going to be to say... The the person casts doubts on the the kind of like motivations of this mad king frequently, and there's this sort of Cambyses character who refuses to believe in a prophecy or is always worried about this prophecy, and then it ends up killing him essentially. Well, maybe not killing him, but he falls victim to it. And I was just reminded this week because we've been dealing with election stuff mm-hmm. of the art art and statistics of polling and. People get very obsessive these days about polling and predicting things. Have we really moved on as a human race from predicting shit? Like, we used to do it with prophecies and, like, give people drugs and have people on mountains tell us things in the smoke. I mean, have we really changed that much? <laughs> it feels, I guess not. This we past just do it in a different kinda, way. Yeah, it's just like, okay, we've got statistics now. That's fun. And there's more <laughs> research behind it. And yeah. So, you know, you you can ground yourself in that comfort, I suppose, that maybe there's some science to it now, and maybe that's more truthful, but I feel like the polling has gotten exposed in recent times, or it's just, you know, you're dealing with an imperfect type of math or imperfect science, so yeah. I don't know. I just thought that prophecy part, people are just always trying to predict the future, you know, and that, yeah. that just has not gone away, so that's my connection. How about for you? Uh, for me, it's just like an appreciation um, for history, but also um, I was thinking about it, and I think just the way that we gather information and how information kind of like, especially like our previous ideas of something can showcase like our perspectives and our biases. So it's like an interesting way to see how information, like how is information given out and how do we form our biases based on uh, warring or different perspectives? I think that's an interesting connection. Totally. And it, we live in an age of, I think most people would agree, information overexposure, yeah, like overload. Exactly. We, we have access to almost too much information, Yeah, which seems, I don't know, almost hypocritical as a person who revels in uh, like reading, gathering information, learning new things. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. At some point, you have to disconnect yourself from trying to <laughs> absorb. You, no person can contain everything. So it just feels exhausting at times to know where to cut off, you know, know where to say stop and like, I don't want to learn new things today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to know 20 headlines today. And and the thing is, is like there's uh, the accusation that especially the media that we consume already serves our certain biases, right? So like we've got right, right. Um, certain me- media outlets that 
give us a certain perspective, but they don't give the whole perspective or they, they select information rather than providing all the information. So right, um, right. The, the way that we present information too, I think could be a connection to um, the histories here. Yeah. Yeah. And the academic lens that we so often like to apply or that I often apply to a lot of the classics we've been reading, this would make for fascinating, just a study, like look at how he's doing it. What sources has he pulled from? It's kind of an interesting way to look at how history even got conceived of in yeah. a way, or at least historical narrative. And so, yeah, it's a great connection. Let's move to the deep dive, deep dive part of the pod. Keeping that in, no edits, people. I'm doing this in one take. <laughs> um, three. This is the third, you know, third to last episode in the Penguins collection. We're cruising now, folks. Yeah, this is, we're in retirement days. These are our retirement days, basically. <laughs> yeah, we're in retirement. Um, we, we're going to move to the deep dive part of the pod, where we like to give some quotes to clarify the style of the writing and sort of the feel of reading it. I'm going to begin with one, and I'm going to be annoying again, but I have to do this. I can't not do this. This is from page 48. The names, Amanda, it's a problem. It's a real problem here. The proper noun, proper nounism or nameism, whatever you want to uh, call it. Again, this is from one page. I'm just going to read the na- the proper nouns that appear on this one page. Uh, we have Samians, Siphnians. We have Hydria, Hermione, or Hermione. Peloponnesi, which I guess that's Peloponnesian, Trozian, Trozian, Cyanea, Crete, Zacynthians, Diatina, uh, Aegeatians, Cretans, which I maybe said, Simonians, I said, Athena, which, you know, it's Athena, uh, Aegina, and then Aegeatians, um, Amphicrates, 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 and I think there's one more on here, but I may have missed. That I mean, that's what reading this is like. You have to be diligent. If you're if you're not willing to keep track of those, or if you have no background knowledge, is frankly, I really don't. You know, it's like I know what the yeah. Peloponnesian Wars were, but and beyond that, like I don't know these empire names, right. these peoples. So if you're not willing to do the work on that, this is just an unapproachable thing, or at least eh, it's not going to be worth it. You have to be willing to do that work. I'm not sure if you felt burdened by that. No, for, I did actually. And like my first quote that I chose was a reflection of that as well. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, dive into no, it. I, I won't read the quote because it's, it's the same, essentially, information. Um, but I also, I chose the quote that mentioned what's called the sacred disease. And um, I had to look that up because I was like, what are they talking about? And it's epilepsy, right? Um, and then after I read that it's epilepsy, then I was like, oh, that's right. Back in, like, when I studied history in high school, like, they talked about the sacred, that's what that is, is epilepsy is the sacred disease. So it's like if you have not studied history in a while, getting back into it and reading this, it's like you're back in history class and you're like, man, I have to do, like, research uh, in yeah. order to understand some of this stuff. And he did a good job for the most part, um, providing like a chronological series of events, but he also had like almost like flashbacks where he, there's some rough transitions in this. Yeah. There were some crazy transitions where sometimes I had to like stop and like regroup because I was like, okay, now where, what, what's going on now? But also he made references to like previous events that, he yep. had not mentioned in at least in the narrative that we were given. So yeah. I was like, uh, is this <laughs> a, a previous thing or is this something that everybody knew or knows or so? Yeah. Structurally, it's can be quite a challenge. Yeah, for sure. 
and I, you know, dare I say it again, shout outs to textbooks that use subsections. Yeah. That's where subsections pay off for you. Just tell me your little divergent, you know, give me your two page divergence, but put a headline on it. And then if you wouldn't mind, just wrap it up at the end and remind me why you just did that. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we've become so accustomed to simple modern writing techniques like that, which are functional, but maybe a little boring. Mm-hmm. This though, I mean, when you do, when you jump as much as this does, you risk confusion. And it's like, well, with history, would I rather be a little bored or very confused? I right. don't know. I'd rather be a little bored probably. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I did pull one quote that I liked, and this is just going to be not so much for the writing, but I think this is a fair representation of the writing in that sense, because it's kind of just neutral, uh, neutrally written. But um, there's some anecdotes in here that really that can get to you if you find history at all intriguing, or the idea of like lying about history intriguing. This is a battle that I think Cambyses is going to, he's going to Egypt to conquer it, and they brought some mercenaries or something, and on page eight, they describe their activities as thus. The mercenaries then set up a mixing bowl midway between their own and the enemy camp, after which they led out the children one by one, children of the enemies, and cut their throats over the mixing bowl. After the final dispatch of all the children, wine and water were poured into the bowl as well. The mercenaries then gulped down the blood and headed off into battle. Fierce though the fighting was, however, and numerous the casualties on both sides, it was the Egyptians who finally turned tail. And then he follows it up by saying, I witnessed something truly extraordinary there, which I was tipped, tipped off of by um, about by the locals. So he then goes, that's kind of in his narrative style, is just kind of to be like, well, I heard this from you know these people, or like, this guy told me this thing, and I'm going to include this now, and this source seems good. But I think those two quotes illustrate, or that quote illustrates the two most important things, which is, this does deliver the just raw historical goods of just, if you think anything about um, ancient civilizations is intriguing. You're going to get some nuggets in here. Do I think like slaughtering children and drinking their blood is cool or, you know, fun? Like, no, but it's also just to, just to have the notion that that could have been a real tradition for whatever mercenary band that was is just so macabre. And I'd find it interesting in the very detached sense of that word. And so just, it's just like bizarre things of, it feels like a, you know, a literal world away. But and so then there's also the narrative style of just kind of him jumping almost anecdotally around, which, yeah, I don't know. It makes for fun little stories, but I don't think it made for a cohesive picture of anything. And I don't think it had kind of like an overarching. Oh, yes, I learned this about like, what will I remember about Cambyses? Not really much. I'll probably just remember a couple of those fun, you know, fun in air quotes there. But uh, those strange little details of a different world. That's I don't know. That's why I take away. Nice. Um, my other quote kind of encompasses that as well. <laughs> so I'll, um, I'll go ahead and read mine. I was witness, moreover, of a great marvel being informed of it by the natives of the place, that the skulls of the Persians are so weak that if you shall hit them only with a pebble, hmm. you will make a hole in them, while those of the Egyptians are so exceedingly strong that you would hardly break them if you struck them with a large stone. The cause of it, they say, was this and I, for my part, readily believe them, namely that the Egyptians, beginning from their early childhood, shave their heads, and the bone is thickened by exposure to the sun. So I I chose this quote for much the same reason as you, where you get these little tidbits of information, especially uh, culturally, right? We get a lot of cultural insights from um, Herodotus, and... It's interesting, but it's also these generalizations. They are generalizations, right? So I don't know how much to actually trust everything that he says. Um, 
Right. Because they are generalizations. I trust that he believed that. You know what I mean? You're just getting a glimpse of a time when, you know, the knowledge of the human skull was about that good. (laughs) That's about the quality of, you know, the human biology or something. Yeah. And he, anytime that he makes a comment, like, I believe this or I don't believe this, right? Um, He, he explains his reasoning behind it. So he, he also gives us a glimpse into like um, his logical reasoning for his ideas. And so right. I, I thought that was interesting. It's, it's the, I suppose, least historian aspect of him, <laughs> right? Because sure. he's yeah. providing an, an opinion um, and making generalizations rather than just recording facts. Um, but I found that really interesting um, yeah. in the writing. When I think... I'm always one to know, or to not to know, to believe that good history always will have an interpretation of sorts because there's too many facts for it to be any other way. That's right. what that's the whole job of a great historian, right? It's not just we can record the facts for infinity, but we have to put meaning on them, take lessons away, find patterns that have some semblance of meaning, try and learn from things, etc. I think he's pretty. I don't know. He's pretty open about that. I guess what I'm not taking away was I don't think he gets to a thesis, but I don't think he was writing with one in mind, if that makes sense. I, like, I don't, that's what I'm saying. When I come away from this book, I, again, don't know how you'll feel in remembering it, but I feel like I'll remember, again, some of the anecdotes and bizarre details, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like a work with a thesis to me. Yeah, and the I agree with you. I don't think that there was a particular thesis. I think that he was just recording yeah. information as he received it or as he uh, gathered it. But the way that Penguin had organized it, the madness of Cambyses, right? Right. Yeah. With that particular title, I thought that that would be the focus of the reading. There is mention, right? They, he does give a few paragraphs where he discusses examples of um, of evidence for the the madness theory, but that's it. The rest of it was just like these this information about like the goings on during the war, these generalizations about Egyptians and Phoenicians and stuff like that. The the actual title that uh, Penguin gave, I think, is almost a little misleading. Yeah, there, well, and there's one big, I'm not going to go dig it up for the review, but there is one huge transition in the middle, near the middle, late middle, where he goes away from Cambyses for a significant chunk of the pages. I'm not yeah. sure if you, yeah, that that was the part we were, I referred to earlier where it just, this takes some big swings and digressions. It feels extremely digressive in that moment for like 10 pages or more. Yeah. So yeah, just when I thought I had a grasp on you know, the first couple pages are rough because you're just acclimating to the names and just the style, and it's pretty stiff, you know? Yeah. But it, the, but then there's a narrative going with the camp, and you're like, okay, I'm going to follow this leader. We're tracking his, you know, conquering of Egypt and why, and there was a bunch of marriage issues, and he's marrying off every daughter, and then he wants to marry his sister, and it's just marriage issues, basically. Mm-hmm. Cause all this uproar in, in the empires. And then you think you're following that, and at that point, about 20 or 30 pages in, I was I was kind of gliding with it and i was surprised because my opinion on it had kind of changed yeah and then it digresses quite aggressively into i don't even remember what the anecdote was but then it and then it's off for 10 pages and you're like are we gonna get back to cambyses (laughs) or is that just over now or (laughs) it didn't really wrap him up and then it does it does end with his death so right yeah but you're right it's just 
not lack of an editor, you know, those 2,500-year-old historians, man, they needed they needed some tighter editorial help, I think. <laughs> yeah. Tighten it up a little bit, man. <laughs> Get your structure right, I think. And that's my crude advice uh, many, many years onward. Let's jump to the literary corner, Amanda. Let's teach our listeners something. Because I have been incredibly lazy and did not do the research doc for this and just freestyling, just riffing this one, Ooh. I did not check to see if you had a literary corner term. Do you I have do one not. that you want to use? Okay, then I'm going to throw mine out there. Let's teach the listener something about literature, literary theory, rhetor- uh, rhetorical things. I'm going to go with historicism. This is an intellectual tendency founded in philosophy, sociology, and many other disciplines since around the 1800s that stresses the importance of historical context to the understanding of any social or cultural phenomenon. In particular, it insists that the meanings and values of human artifacts and systems of thought are to be understood in relation to the historical circumstances of their production and not according to later, especially present-day, standards. And so it's a very narrative, um, narrow, sorry, version of historical relativism. Mm-hmm. So I only pulled this just because I, I don't even know if evaluating this under those merits would make any sense. It kind of has to be done that way because it is, it is just a history. It's not in. I don't think this was considered an art form back then. It may have been, but this was just more of a a person trying to catalog events. But then again, it's got some interpretive aspects. It's got some myth in it. It's got some kind of creativity to it. Right. I just think as a reader, if you were to read this aesthetically or for pleasure or just, I don't know, for a broad connection to humanity any other way, I don't think it would really work that well. I think you have to meet it at its terms or sort of in its period and know this was maybe the first person who had ever tried this yeah. <laughs> in a sense. And so if you can be generous in that type of reading, that helps enormously. It'll also make you think these names, I don't really need to know all these. So I'm just skimming, you know, I'm not right. going to, not going to sit here and try and pronounce uh, Achaemenides correctly, you know, for 10 minutes or whatever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just like, I'm going to abbreviate that and just understand that it's a term I would have known. Right. You know? I think that's a great point. Like with this particular read, you do have to come at it less from a stylistic perspective and be forgiving in that there's going to be, this is the first of its kind. So it's, it's more exploratory almost the way that he's writing. So if you can keep an open mind about that, I think that you won't absolutely hate it. As someone who reads, I would say, with that perspective, most of the time I read anything that was written before 1900. Do you think there's any other way? Do you, do you think someone would read an unannotated version of Shakespeare today and just think, I'm just vibing with this? Like, people aren't, I don't know, writing has changed so much that yeah. I you have to go in with that generosity of intellectual spirit, I, I think. Anyway, I don't know how else it could be done. Like, it, we're just not accustomed and raised in those writing traditions, you know? We're not, we don't write like Jane Austen wrote, so as soon as you decide that's what you're going to try and do for enjoyment, let's say... I don't just, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me to do it, to do it without the um, sort of historicism angle. But do you think you approach any old art that way with completely on its, on a modern terms? No, I don't, I don't think that that would even make sense, right? Even things that are, are post 1900s, right? Things from the Great Depression, the Jazz Age, um, the Harlem Renaissance, Mm -hmm. anything from those perspectives, like you still have to look at it. It's recent history, yeah, but yeah. you still have to have like an appreciation for the culture and the times because the literature is a reflection of those times. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's for sure. I But then again, not to go full contradiction or devil's advocate of myself, I do find it fascinating, this collection has illuminated this a little, when you come across something from the past, and again, maybe we said this on this pod, I say again, like I said today, but we said this on the pod series a million times, maybe it's just a credit to a good translation, you know, a vibrant translation by an author who really cared about making it appealing to a modern reader or whatever. But it's, I find it fascinating when something just is, comes across in this collection as just very aesthetically um, modern. And I just kind of vibe with it. It reads really cl- like crisply and cleanly, and you don't have to do a lot of work to kind of meet them halfway. Mm-hmm. So there is some kind of, I don't know, there's something very human uh, human-based pleasure to just seeing something written that's so old, and you're like, wow, this is like this is just a fun read or this just, you know, has the right flow or, and so, yeah, but no, I'm, I think generally that point aside, you kind of have to approach it with some level of historicism. Otherwise it's just going to, you're just going to be struggling immensely for really no reason at that point. Or maybe, I don't know if you're the one person out there who again approaches Shakespeare with no assistance, just give us a shout and tell us what's going on. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) And also how, how did you learn to do that? Um, uh, you know, if you're an academic, you've been trained, so you can't count yourself as that group. Yeah. Any final thoughts on historicism before we finish the pod? I, don't th- I, I, I would just say that you can have an appreciation for the the stylistic choices, or like with Charlotte Perkins Gilman, like her short stories we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they are like wonderfully written. It's concise, but uh, the settings were clear, the mood, the atmosphere, everything. It's just like really well done. And you can appreciate that on a very surface level, but without the knowledge of um, what was happening as far as um, women's rights during that time, specifically um, with postpartum depression, which is what she mm-hmm. was writing about you're not going to have a deep appreciation for the purpose of the writing. So yeah. yeah. What if I think she, we can, let's just start inventing arbitrary tests or rules. Right. Mm -hmm. I think she passes really well for a writer in terms of just quality and approachability Mm -hmm. depth. If you hand a person her work with just like one tag, if you just said, this is a feminist thing, you should read this. I think that the people can make the rest of the trip on their own kind of now would they pick up on you know yellow wallpapers the criticism of that specific idea probably not or you know those like th- that's where yeah the research really helps or getting an angle or finding criticism that's where that stuff becomes so fruitful so helpful right. but i think she is still a strong recommendation with just a one word it's not even a caveat it's like a setup right just right. be like this read this and know that it's feminist and then see what see what comes right i yeah. don't think herodotus would have that <laughs> no. i think i need i need a couple sentences to like you know get ease somebody into approaching reading this and a lot of the history stuff we've read in here though i think that the roman one the suetonius if i just said if i could do a sentence and hand that to somebody and feel pretty good i'd be like this is about like this person hates this Roman emperor and their emperor's out of control. It's there you go. Like read it. It's kind of bizarre and like really distressing how depraved this man was. And there you go. So yeah. Anyway, but I think, I don't think this one has that one word Perkins Gilman check. Right. If that makes sense. That does. Let's jump to the final part of the review, which we will do in two parts as ever. The first part will be the Russell French in memoriam. So what's good about it segment. This is when we give genuine praise to something we read. I will start. I'm yeah. just going to reiterate what I said. Uh, the anecdotes are, they are that type of 
kind of ancient history that feels almost alien, but, you know, in a way deeply human, like the prophecy stuff I already covered felt distressingly similar to what we're still trying to do. And yet they are drinking blood and then fighting, which seems pretty foreign to me. Um, Not that war has gone away or even like bloodlust, but there are some traditions in here that uh, also feel just extremely... I don't know, detached. And so I just enjoy, I don't know, I feel like that is the fun of history, if you want to call it fun. Um, It's just seeing these things that can feel both ways at the same time. How about for you, Amanda? Uh, Very similar to yours in that I, what I really enjoyed was that he gave us um, each side's perspective um, for the reasons behind, like why they were going to war and stuff. Uh, Specifically, the perspectives on um, and his perspective and his beliefs about the, the cultural aspects um, of these groups. I I found those to be really interesting. Yeah. And it's in that sense, Marco Polo asked that I think he is considered more of a reliable source than maybe Marco Polo ended up being, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of just get all these glimpses and yeah, it's pretty multicultural. You get a lot of exposure to religious trends. There's a god cow that gets stabbed in the thigh. There's, <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, all kinds of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, intriguing sort of, yeah, religious moments, cultural moments. So it's filled with that. Again, if you have that type of curiosity, then this is actually pretty fascinating reading if you can stomach the density. Yeah. Let's jump to the review then, Amanda. Why don't you start us off? We rate on a simple three-tier system. Yes, definitely read this. No, definitely don't. And then a maybe in the middle. What are you going with this week? Uh, this week, I'm going to say maybe. Um, I sure. yeah. personally don't think that I will ever pick this up again. Um, but yeah. it's just because it's not really... History for me is not really that interesting. Um, I, I like some historical fiction sometimes uh but yeah but i I just it's not my cup of tea necessarily but um the the things that i did find interesting were the perspectives on on humanity and and these cultures and stuff so if it had been a focus on that rather than on like you know listing of names and and particular wars and stuff like that i wasn't really interested but if you are interested in that or if you are interested in um historical perspectives and and how people saw each other um in history then i think that this could be a a good read for you um as long as you're okay with it not being textbook like right a lot of people are just used to facts, you know, with history or information presented as fact, I should say. And, but he doesn't really present it as fact. He, he presents it as like theories, like contrasting Mm -hmm. theories and ideas and stuff. So if you're okay with that, then this is going to be a really interesting read. But if that's something that would drive you crazy, then I would suggest you steer clear of it. And there are certainly historical periods that have no lack of, research books, summary books, textbooks, whatever. I mean, ancient Greece, ancient Persia, these are well covered, well, not maybe not well understood in the perfect historical sense, but just well covered territories. So it would not be difficult to find another source. Yeah, I would say maybe for me, I think I turned the corner on this. It was a no, but I think I came to appreciate 
the kind of voice of it, which was a pretty, it's a pretty light hand, but it shows up enough to where you remember like, oh, this guy really is just trying to put this together with like, he just meets people and like starts to kind of get their narratives to gel and mesh. And he's just trying to find any semblance of a through line to present this cohesively. I sort of admired it. It felt very workmanlike in that way. So more than maybe recommending reading it, it's more of just like I'd tip my cap across the time period to, yeah. or across the ages to him to say, you know, this was an impressive effort and kind of really intriguing as a document. But yeah, I think it would have to be a, a maybe out of respect, but it's it's really only for those who are extremely serious about, about history and the recording of human history, human events. So... Which, I don't know, shouldn't that be all of us? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Any final word on the, oh, I forgot his name for a second, Herodotus, before we close out the review today? Uh, nope, that's it for me. Okay. I was going to say Sutoni a second because he came up. Well, folks, we've got two book reviews in the Penguin Little Black Classics left. Next week, we'll be back with Speaking of Shiva, which is a collection of four different Hindu poets. I believe that's true. I don't have it in front of me, though. Sorry if that ends up being wrong. And then we end with the Dhammapada, which is uh, the Buddhist kind of religious text. So we're ending the series going, going heavy on religion. We'll see how that turns out. And until next week's review, we will see you between the classics. 